For the first time in almost 15 years, I find myself here on New Year's Eve. A little bit disorienting for me. We'll be looking at Ezekiel chapter 37, the first 14 verses, as we wrap up one year and look forward to another year. Ezekiel, as most of you will know, is, of course, one of the Old Testament prophets. For those of you who need some help finding it, go to Psalms and turn right and walk three or four long city blocks and you'll come to Ezekiel, chapter 37. He was an Old Testament prophet, but he was a prophet in the time of the exile, so um, most of his time was spent among those who had already been taken captive into Babylon. And so his prophecy and his ministry among uh, the exiles in Babylon is a, uh, is a ministry of helping them understand what happened. How is it that we got here? And is there any hope for us uh, given the nature of the case? This is a very well-known passage. This is the passage called the Valley of Dry Bones. Most of you will recognize it. Read with me. Ezekiel chapter 37, the first 14 verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a great rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, 
They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from, the, from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord and I, when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this strange passage is the word of God to you and to me, even in our own circumstances, that we may know that our hope is in Jesus. So let us go to him and ask that he feed us on this word. Father, you commanded your servant Ezekiel to eat the word that you have given to him and then to proclaim it. The very word that we have now here before us preserved by the power of your Spirit through the ages in our own language so that you may speak to us. And so, Father, we come as those who are frail, as those who are prone to wander, as those who are prone to distraction, and we pray, O Father, by the powerful working of your Spirit even today, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, Feed us upon this, your word. Strengthen us, refresh us, change us, transform us. Protect us, Father, from error, that we may taste and see the wonder of your love, the wonder of your glory, the wonder of your Son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Some of you may have to endure my... Uh, sniffling, forgive me. Can you hand me that box right there so that... Forgive me. It's the end of a busy year. I've been looking at um, various and sundry year-end blogs. You know how those entries go. The last two weeks of December, the topic for any blogger is already set. It's the year in review or something like that. After all, they're with family, and so they just pick up all their headlines from the previous year. But the theme seems to be, whether on a personal level, on a church level, or on the national level, level that we're exhausted. 2017 was an exhausting year. It was an emotionally exhausting year. It was a spiritually exhausting year. It was just an exhausting year. It seems to have gone fast. I do not know if I heard it once. I heard it a hundred times. How did the year go so fast? It seems that we just celebrated New Year's of 2017, and here we are at New Year's of 2018. None of us had trained for the marathon that we feel like we have just run. 
were exhausted. Although I had chosen this passage for this day um, some months ago, and the more I got into it, and the more I was reading these blogs, and the more I was reflecting on the year 2017, the more I'm realizing it was an appropriate passage Because as we read about the valley of dry bones, I'm guessing that many of you are saying, yes, that's exactly how I feel. The valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel tells me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of of the valley, not a valley, you might read it, the plain, but in a particular place. It's a place that we've known about, we've heard about before. Ezekiel opens with this vision of Ezekiel, this vision that Ezekiel sees as he's there among the exiles by the canal Jabbar. It is the vision of the glory of the Lord. And then just a couple chapters later, he is transported and he is set among the exiles in the valley. And there again, he sees that same vision of the glory of the Lord. This is the valley where he comes now. But rather than being filled with the exiles of Israel, it's filled with dry, parched bones, bleached in the sun. In terms of the vision, we don't know how they got there. Was it a a slaughter of some sort, some sort of military campaign? We don't know. Was it a mass famine of some sort? We don't know. All we know is that there is a valley of dry bones. But of course, it's a vision. There, it's a prophetic vision. There is something going on here. And even beginning in verse 11, we understand what the vision means. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And so it's not just that he's seeing any old bones in any old valley. He's actually seeing now the parched, dismembered, bleached bones of God's chosen ones. Israel. The valley of dry bones is the depiction is Ezekiel's prophetic depiction of what Paul describes in Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20. Which you remember begins with, they did not glorify him as God, but worshiped the creature rather than the creator, and so became futile in their own thinking. And that two chapter section concludes with, so... Whether Jew or Gentile, whether the elect or the Gentile nations, there is none righteous, no, not one, 
All are lost and without hope. Paul himself goes on to quote from the Psalms there. So what Ezekiel is depicting here is not unique to Ezekiel, it's not unique in Scripture, but is actually a theme that is, a, is part and parcel of the good news that Paul proclaims in Romans. But it's strange to us, isn't it? Because the audience for both Paul and for Ezekiel are the chosen ones of Israel, are the elect, what we might call believers, those who have known themselves to be the object of the Father's affection. Does Ezekiel not know that? Does Paul not know that? Does he not know that he is speaking to those who are the objects of the Father's affection? Does he not know that he is speaking to those who are the elect? Does Ezekiel not understand that he is speaking to those, the elect? Because if he did understand it, why would he be speaking of them as dry bones? He, they do understand it. Both Ezekiel and both Paul, and both Ezekiel and Paul and others, they do understand it. In fact, that's part of the urgency, that's part of the passion, that's part of the excruciating agony that motivates the communication of the vision. Even in the case of the Valley of Dry Bones, we, we are made explicitly aware that the message does not originate with Ezekiel, but it actually originates with the very one who has set his love upon the people. If God so loves this people, why would he speak in this way to them? Well, because while those who know themselves to be unbelievers recognize themselves as such, at least relative to uh, the religion in which they are speaking, so those who are not Christian believers know they're not Christian believers, and that's not a problem to them. Those who are not Buddhist believers know themselves to not be Buddhist believers. Those who are not Muslims know themselves to be not believers of Islam. But those who have tasted and seen the sweetness of the fellowship with the Father are in danger at every turn because of the bent of our hearts of presuming upon the love of the Father. And in presuming upon the love of the Father, they grow accustomed to it. They grow forgetful of it. They grow cold to the wonder of it all. The danger of this becomes clear when we, is, when we understand and consider 
how Ezekiel understands this to have happened. How is it that the house of Israel, the chosen ones, actually came to fill a valley with dry, parched bones? If these are the elect, the specially chosen ones of the Father's great love, then how did this happen? Well, it happened through this process of faithless presumption as evidenced in, as we know from other parts of Scripture, in very sincere idolatry. Beginning even at the very beginning in chapter 5, Ezekiel is beginning to describe a history of disobedience. Disobedience, of active disobedience as well as a passive disobedience. What we in our circles call sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Sins of actually doing things that are against God's will, but also sins of failing to do what God actually commands. Disobedience born of of ignoring or dismissing or minimizing or explaining away or otherwise adjusting what God requires of his people in order to accommodate life among the Canaanites. The prime example given throughout the prophets of this failure of Israel to follow the design and the of the Lord is their failure to honor the Sabbath. But it's not just there. There's also, in chapter 5, Ezekiel describes their profanity. That is to say, their, their habit of profaning the holy things of God, the holy places, the holy buildings. What's in a place, after all? What's in a name, after all? It's just words. We all mean the same thing, don't we? The Canaanites call him Baal, we call him Yahweh, but we're really all talking about the same thing, aren't we? Well, no, we're not. But such thinking leads to a making vain, a making empty of the glory of God and the glory of God's name. Chapter 6 goes on and, and outlines the habitual idolatry of Israel. And when we think of idolatry of Israel, we tend to think of them saying no to this and moving over here to worship this or that idol made of rock or made of wood gilded with gold. And that was certainly part of it. But we have to stop and think a little bit more carefully because that's not all that was involved. The idolatry of Israel was not from their perspective, from, their, from within their own hearts. They weren't rejecting Yahweh. They were supplementing Yahweh. They were helping him make sense to the Canaanites. They were adjusting to life among the Canaanites. The Canaanites worship this way and worshiping Yahweh in this way doesn't make any sense. So let's help them by incorporating some of their worship habits and patterns into our worship of Yahweh. 
And after all, Yahweh is a spirit. And so we don't really have to worship him at the temple. We can also worship him under every green tree. And that makes sense to the Canaanites. And so they find themselves slip sliding into an idolatry that in fact guts Yahweh of his glory. And so you can see also the syncretism, turning aside to other cults, adding them, incorporating them as, as um, Ezekiel describes in chapter 8. Another word that the Bible uses for this whole process is this word adultery, which feels quaint and old-fashioned to us. But they had taken other idols into their hearts. The gods of the Canaanites had captured the passions of their hearts. And they had gone to bed with them, so to speak. Some of you might be familiar with the religions of the ancient world, and Canaan is one of them. There were gods for this, there were gods for that, there were gods for another thing. There was the god of the sun, the god of the moon, there was the god of fertility. There was the god of strength, there was the god of power. And after all, what kind of god can keep up with all of those things? It's a huge administrative task. And so... We understand that Yahweh is Lord of Lords. But maybe he needs some lesser gods to help him with these administrative tasks. And so they captivate themselves with the beauty and the apparent wisdom of Canaanite philosophy and religion. We have to understand here. This is what's so confusing for the people of Israel they continue to use the language and the practices of Yahwehism while pursuing these other things. In their minds, their incorporation of these things was in fact growing to be increasingly relevant in the land in which they found themselves. But they continued to use the language and practices of Yahwehism without the care and attentiveness, without the mental and spiritual engagement that it required. They continued to keep up the appearances and trappings of Yahwehism, but with lifestyles that demonstrated a complete capitulation to the Canaanite religions. So what's the result when that happens? We tend to think that the result is just, just not a completely full life. But Ezekiel is describing to us that the result of such a thing is absolute dryness. Absolute death. This has rendered them exhausted and parched, bereft, abandoned, and barren and so confused, and feeling betrayed. How can Yahweh do this to us after all we've done for Him? One last thing on this. It is important to note that the valley, that the people, that the bones that fill the valley 
are not there because they were doing too much. It's not that the people were so exhausted because they were doing too much. It's not that their schedules were too full. The solution is not to simplify. The problem is not quantity. The problem is what they were doing. The problem is what they were filling their time with. For what reasons? To what ends? That was the problem. It wasn't that they were just too busy and they need to create margin and back off. They needed to change what they were doing. They needed not only to change what they were doing, but they needed to change their understanding of why we do it and to what end do we do this. That's what needed to happen. They needed a new heart. They needed to understand that you cannot pursue a love affair with Yahweh according to the wisdom and strategies of the Canaanites. Because that's idolatry. And it will kill you. To pursue Yahweh with Canaanite motivations and strategies is simply exhausting and foolish. Canaanites served Baal in order to leverage from him blessings on their family or on their crops. Make us fertile, make our crops fertile so that we may know professional security, we may know economic security, we may know military might. And so the Canaanites served Baal in order to leverage from him blessings on their crops. Ah, but we know, we say, that Yahweh is the true God of fertility, the true God of power, the true God of security. And so without thinking one step further, we launch into pursuing Yahweh according to the same pattern that the Canaanites Pursue him. No, no, don't pursue Baal to leverage from him his blessings on your crops. Pursue Yahweh to leverage from him blessings upon your crops. It sounds good, but upon reflection, do you understand what's happening? We've made a prostitute of Yahweh. To serve Yahweh in the same way and for the same reasons that the Canaanites pursued Baal is to make Yahweh a prostitute. To use Yahweh to secure our own glory and to further our own agenda. To satisfy the desires of our own hearts. Sadly, this is so often a pattern for us in North America. We find ourselves captive to the beauty and the apparent wisdom of the culture around us. And while, using the, while continuing to use the language and the practices of our worship of God, we find ourselves pursuing the idols of the culture around us. In fact, thinking to ourselves that Yahweh 
the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is the best way to secure for ourselves the desires of our hearts. And it happens most often on a very unconscious level. And so it is we find ourselves exhausted at the end of another year like dry bones and valley. Can such dry bones live another day, another week, another year? Oh, Lord. You know. What hope is there for such a people? Thus says the Lord Yahweh. Now, those of you who are here from week to week, you understand that I've been using this name of the Lord Yahweh because we're in the Old Testament. That is the name of Israel's God, the one who came to Israel and said, you will be my people and I will be your God. That God His name is Yahweh. He is unlike any other. His name is Yahweh. The one who came to Abram and said, contrary to all the wisdom and the strategies of the Tower of Babel, I will make for you a great name. I will make for you a great nation. I will do it because that's who I am. I am the promise maker and the promise keeper. That's the language of covenant that we like to use in our circles. It's different than a contract because a contract says, I will do this as long as you do that. But the language of covenant we read throughout the Old Testament is, I will do this, period. In fact... In the call of Ezekiel, in the call of Jeremiah, and in the call of Isaiah, we know that the reason the Lord is calling them is because the very people He has covenanted to love have proven themselves to be unfaithful. This is the God of what some people in our circles are calling the God of one-way love. One-sided love. The fancy word for it is monergism, single energy love. It's a love that does not depend upon the responsiveness of the people. But it is a love that is steady and unchanging and abounding day after day after day after day, year after year after year after year. And his name is Yahweh. And so if you look, verse 37, the hand of the Lord, that's the hand of Yahweh was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the midst of the valley. In verse 3, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, Yahweh, you know. O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Verse 5, thus says Yahweh to these bones. So I prophesied as I was commanded all the way throughout Scripture, all the way throughout this passage. The name of Yahweh is echoing throughout the valley. 
Because the one agent of life in the valley is Yahweh. He is the one who comes to a people who have exhausted themselves in the pursuit of idols. And says, I love you. And I will restore you. The hope for bones such as this is the steadfast, abounding love of Yahweh, which endures. It endures my foolishness. It endures your foolishness. It endures my fickleness. It endures your fickleness. It endures my frailty. It endures your frailty. The steadfast love of the Lord which endures not just hanging on, but with power. It endures with power. So I prophesied I was, I was, I, as I was commanded. And, and, and behold, oh, excuse me. And there was, as I prophesied, there was a sound and a rattling. You'll see some of you, if you have an ESV, the alternative there of a rattling is an earthquake. It's not just a boom. But there is a rattling. There is a roaring. We hear some of, we hear similar themes when we begin to understand what this sound is and what this rattling is. We begin to, we begin to remember Israel gathered at Sinai and the thunder and the, and the storm and the thick dark clouds that covered Sinai. We begin to remember the Shekinah that descended upon the tabernacle and then later the temple. We might remember Acts chapter 2, the sound, the fury sound and the rattling. I have a friend who um, recently was reading through Ezekiel. Came to this passage. What do you think that sounded like, she said? What do you think that sounded like? In my mind, it sounds like a bamboo wind chime. Bamboo has this sound that approximates what I imagine to be the sound of hollow bones clanking against each other. She liked that, so she got herself a bamboo wind chime so that she could remember the sound of God's word as it blows through her life with power. By the Spirit, verse 5 I will cause breath to enter you, you shall live. I will lay sinews on you. I will put breath in you and you shall live. Prophesy to the breath, verse, eight, verse 9. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain. And then, of course, verse 14. And so I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. This, the hope for parched bones is the steadfast love of the Lord which endures with power by the Spirit. But brothers and sisters, look. Verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. It's not just any old feeling. The Spirit is not just, it makes me feel good. 
The Spirit runs in the tracks of the Word of God. And that is so important so that we recognize the Spirit because sometimes it's just indigestion. And we need to know how do we discern between the Spirit and indigestion. We discern it by going to the Word. But notice this. It's curious. O son of man, prophesy. So I prophesied as I was commanded. O son of man, again, prophesy even to the breath. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. It's the steadfast love of the Lord, enduring with power by the Spirit through the Word, preserved and passed on by His human agency. Oh, this is so hard for us. We trust Jesus, we just don't trust the church. We trust Scripture. We just don't trust the feeble men who are called to proclaim it. But brothers and sisters, that's the design. That's how the steadfast love of the Lord endures and quickens and refreshes and brings to new life. Will Williman wrote in 1997 in an article of Christianity Today, he wrote this. It is a strange assumption for Americans to feel they already have the equipment necessary to comprehend the gospel without any modification of lifestyle, without any struggle, in short, without being born again. The point is not to speak to the culture. The point is to change it. God's appointed means of producing change is called the church. God's typical way of producing church is called preaching. Brothers and sisters, you understand this is what's happening here. It's the word of God carried aloft by the Spirit that, that the, uh, by, preached and proclaimed by His servants that brings revival to these bones. As I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews and flesh and skin, but as yet no breath. So verse 9, prophesied to the breath, I prophesied, and the breath came into them, and they lived. They stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Isn't that a great picture? I want you to notice how Ezekiel ends this, and then I want you to recognize that this is how Paul ends his letter to the Thessalonians. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken I will do it, declares the Lord. That is the hope for those of us who are exhausted as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers. As we head into another year, the hope is the steadfast love of the Lord which endures with power by the Spirit through the Word. And of course, you recognize this is all a vision of 
promise. I will put my spirit within you. And so we come to John chapter 20. Jesus now risen from the dead meets together with his disciples. And he says, now receive this promise, the promise of the spirit. And he breathed upon them. And we see it again with power and with glory in Acts chapter 2. The new temple, we've gone from tabernacle to temple in Jerusalem to now a living temple built upon the foundation of apostles with Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. And now in Acts chapter 2, the Shekinah of God's spirit, the Shekinah of Christ's spirit descends and makes its dwelling among God's people. The hope and the life of the gospel is not that we do less, but we do the right things by the animating power of the risen Christ's spirit. So as we go into a new year, I encourage you to think about why are we so exhausted? What are we doing? For what reasons and to what end? And then, what's going on in my own heart? Well, how am I responding to all the things that I am doing? How am I engaging with it? What does my engagement reveal about why and to what end I'm doing what I'm doing? And then, listen. Listen to the Spirit as He blows among you, blows in you and among you. What is the Spirit calling you to? How is the Spirit calling you to organize your life? How is the Spirit calling you to live and breathe and have your being a great army? Because, brothers and sisters, this is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ has granted to us for a new year. Let's go to him in prayer.